lesson sheet from last week. You'll need it. We're going to finish, or not last week, two weeks ago. We're going to finish what we're talking about. It's the lesson that's titled Grace and Truth. And then you should have received a new uh, lesson coming in, lesson three, called Combining Grace and Truth. So while you're getting those out and getting ready for me to, to give you the words to fill in, let me just tell you that this is the last Sunday night that we'll be able to do these lessons until the first of the year. Uh, next Sunday night's the musical program. There's something special that the deacons have planned the following Sunday night. The next Sunday night is Christmas, and we don't have church on that evening. And then the next Sunday is the first of the year. I apologize to you. I did not intend to break these lessons up in this way. But when it took me four weeks to cover two lessons, uh, it has caused me to have to break up uh, the lessons, and consequently, the continuity is lost. And I, I, I hope that you can keep your heart focused with me as much as possible. We will finish after the first of the year. And the first lesson that took two weeks to cover, it basically was about bearing fruit, that we've been called to bear fruit. And to bear fruit, we've got to go. We've got, we got to sow the seed. We've got to water the seed. We've got to cultivate the seed. And then, of course, we, we harvest the, the, the fruit that comes from the seed. But in order for that to any, take place, any of that to take place, is we've got to go. We can't wait for people to come to us. We've got to go to the people. And that was the gist of what that message was about. The last time we met, we were talking about this subject of grace and truth. And we talked about the side of it that's the truth side of it. In that first part of this lesson, it had to do with making sure people understand the truth about their real condition. Now, the reality is that a lot of people you talk to will understand that. You don't have to take them to the law, uh, the moral law of God, to do that. If you ask them if they're a sinner, a lot of folks will just say, yeah, I know, I know I'm a sinner. I think instinctively a lot of people just understand that. But one of the good ways, if you have somebody that doesn't understand that and somebody that doesn't believe that, is you take them to the law. And you compare them against God's perfect standard and everybody comes up short. That's the purpose of the law. Everybody comes up short. We're all sinners. And the real need today is helping people to see their true condition. Uh, unless they can see the truth, it's the truth that sets them free. And unless they can see the truth about their true condition, they'll never understand what's the significance and the importance about the gospel that we proclaim and that we hold so dearly. You see what I'm saying? So in the first lesson that took two weeks, and in this one that's taking two weeks, the first lesson was about, got to go. We've got we to gotta get out there. We've got to get where the people are. We've got to bear fruit. But this particular fruit is going to require for us to get busy, go sow the seed, water the seed, cultivate the seed, and ultimately uh, to harvest the fruit. Well, the last time in this particular series that we're in, the second lesson that we're in, we, we talked about the truth. We've got to help people to understand their true condition. But wait, we, we stopped at letter B. Did you, do you remember that? You got the, the answers to everything before that? We stopped at letter B. We, we didn't get to the matter of grace. It would be a horrible thing to talk to somebody about the truth of their true condition and how their standing before God is a desperate one and to simply leave them there. That's what I did to you. <laughs> I brought you the truth and, and the, the significance of the, of the truth, but then I left you there. 
If you, do, if you do that to somebody, then you're not really preaching the gospel because the gospel is the good news. The truth, of the, the, the truth is, you know, when it relates to the law and our shortcomings, that's the bad news. That's what we really are. This is who we really are. It, it's the gospel. That's, that's the good news. That's the good news that God has done something about it. Yes, you're separated from God. Yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you will die and be, be separated in hell forever. Yes, if you don't know Christ as your Savior. All of those things are true. All of that's true. And if, if you leave them there, then you have left them in, in, in desperate straits. I mean, you talk about being, uh, uh, you know, despair and agony. I mean, that would be it. Remember the old, uh, the old country song? Gloom, despair, and agony on me. What, what show was that off of? Hee haw. I like to watch high quality shows. <laughs> Gloom, despair, and agony on me. I mean, that's what the truth will leave you. If you're comparing myself to the truth, I come up miserably short. But that's where the grace of God comes in. The second ingredient that's absolutely significant and, and important. Is the, is the matter of grace. So what, what is grace? Grace is God's undeserved favor toward mankind. Aren't you thankful for that undeserved favor? I mean, the reality is we all come short. The reality is we are all sinners. The reality is we all deserve to be separated from God once and for all and forever. That's the reality. That's the truth of the matter. And God could have left it at that, but God didn't leave it at that. God came rushing in with the good news, and God brought his favor to mankind when he didn't deserve that favor. And that favor is shown. Grace is God paying. Grace is God paying for our sin. That's what Jesus came to do. We talked about that this morning. That's what Jesus came to do. Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8 says. But then you know, the secondly, grace is God forgiving our sin. Yes, we fall short, and yes, we are sinners, and yes, we deserve to be separated from God. But listen, Jesus wants to forgive you. He has paid the penalty for you. Grace is for God forgiving our sin. Aren't you thankful for his forgiveness? Ephesians 1, 7 talks about the forgiveness of sins. Grace is thirdly, God saving us from the penalty of sin. That's grace. We didn't deserve that, but in his favor, he saves us from the penalty of sin. You know, one of the things, we talk about this sometimes in our staff meetings, and I'm, I'm not the only one that talks about these things. Actually, others sometimes bring them up, not me. We're, we're very concerned that people don't know their true condition, and secondly, that they don't know what the penalty of that is. But the grace of God comes and saves us from that penalty. You know why you're saved tonight? If you're saved tonight, you know why you're saved tonight? The grace of God. You, you got something you didn't deserve. He gave you a gift that you couldn't earn. You had no right to it on your own. And he gave it to you freely. It's called the gift of eternal life. The gift of eternal life. I love it the way we term it sometimes. We, we say it's a free gift. Well, if it's a gift, it's free, right? And if it's free... And he's being given to you. That's, that's a free gift. So I, it's a free gift. We, we just have to double up the words to make sure everybody understands. It's a, it's a free gift. Grace is God saving us from the penalty of sin. And fourthly, grace is God making us his children. I just can't hardly, you know, comprehend that God brings me into his family. 
uh, it makes me his child, adopts me into his family, gives me the rights of one of his children. That's an amazing truth. But that's the grace of God. And that's why we have hope to offer. We're, we're not like uh, the other religions of the world. You realize other, every other religion of the world, every other religion of the world is a religion of works. You've got to do, you've got to work, you've got to scrape hard, you've got to make sure that you, you know, you're doing your part, you've got to try as much as you can, you've got, you know, you got to have self-flagellation, you've got to do things to buffet yourself, you've got to do all this, got crawl on your knees, you've got to kiss the toes of some you know, statue that's sitting in front of you. And when you get to the end of it, what do you know? Zero. God comes to us and he says, Here, here's, your, here's your real situation. You are a sinner. You fall short of the glory of God. You have broken God's law. You deserve to be separated from God once and for all forever to spend eternity paying the penalty of your own time, on, your own, on your own sins. But let me give you the good news. I'm going to come pay it for you. And I'm going to forgive you of your sins and I'm going to make you my child in the process, and I'm going to give you that gift, eternal life, and it's not going to cost you anything. You don't do anything for it. You believe on me, and that's it. That's pretty good news, isn't it? And so when we bring people to the truth, we help them to understand their condition, then we have to make sure they know the second ingredient is grace, and I left you with just the truth. You know, some of you have probably led people to the edge of eternal hell and you left them standing there please go back to them and remind them of the grace of God I'm kidding of course please go back and remind them of the grace of God whoever you're talking to whenever you're giving the gospel whenever you're trying to help people understand their true condition never fail to speak about the grace of God and the gospel of God only number two only by grace can a person be saved only by grace I don't care what else you do. There is no other way to be saved. You can shake my hand and confess to me as long as you want. I can't forgive you of anything. Only God can do that. It's by grace that we are saved through faith. We're not justified by the works of the law in any, any fashion, Galatians 2.16. No flesh is justified by the works of the law. If I could just, if I could just do better. No, you'll never do good enough. You have to have the grace of God. You've got to come and believe on Jesus for eternal life, a gift that you could have no other way than believing in Jesus Christ. Because number three, grace rushes in to rescue those who have failed to measure up to the truth. I mean, I'm just going back over this again and again. Grace rushes in to rescue those who have failed to measure up to the truth. Aren't we thankful for the grace of God? You remember where the grace of God where you found or the grace of God found you? You remember where you were? If truth has been properly presented, no one will be guiltless. If truth is properly presented, no one will be guiltless, right? No one will be guiltless. But finally, if truth and grace have been properly presented, no one will feel hopeless. No one will feel hopeless. So we want people to understand the guilt of their sins. We want them to know the consequences. By, by the way, let me just stop here for a moment before we get to the next lesson, and i tell you what we're going to do with it. 
And let me just stop here and tell you that it is not your job to convict people of their sins. That is the, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. So you don't get in somebody's face and say, you are a sinner. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. You don't do that. This is the grace approach. We don't do that. We don't get in people's faces and do that. Um, we present the truth. Let the truth do its work. Let the Holy Spirit take the truth of his word and do, it, do his work in their hearts. It is, the Spirit's, it is the Spirit's job to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. That's why we have to depend on the Spirit of God and ask the Spirit of God to use us as his witnesses and allow the Spirit of God to work in us and through us so that God can bring his conviction. There'll be some people that it'll be like water off a duck's back. They'll hear it, the truth. They'll hear about the grace of God, and they'll walk away and won't change them. But there'll be somebody like Lydia out in that country setting whose heart the Lord has opened. The Spirit of God has opened them to see who they really are and see their only real hope is Jesus Christ. And our job is simply to bring the message. We help them to see the truth and we bring them the grace that God has given. And that's why it says Jesus was full of both grace and truth. Now, if you look in lesson three, we're only going to do the the first letter A. <laughs> We're not going to pick this up until after the first of the year. Again, I apologize. That's because I'm too wordy and too mouthy and too long-winded. But I want you to see a, a statement here that begins this lesson. As someone has said, grace without truth is weakness, and truth without grace is judgment. So Jesus was what? Full of both what? Grace and truth. You want to see the perfect embodiment of grace and truth, which is what we want to be in the world where we live? Then we look to Jesus. We want to be as much like Jesus as we can possibly be so that we're bringing the truth, but we're bringing with the truth the grace of God. Now, you got to combine these two together. That's the point of this next lesson. And we're not going to get through this lesson. We're going to get to a point in this lesson, and I'm going to spend the rest of my time there. We've got to combine these two. We've got to make sure they know the truth, and we've got to share with them the grace of God. Because number one, combining the two ingredients, grace, grace and truth, in a confident presentation is a mixture that will bring others to Christ. Now, if you bring the Bible and say, well, I think the Bible says that you're a sinner, and I think the Bible says God is a God of grace, and I think that grace abounds where sin does much more, grace abounds much more, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. I'll get to it. Just give me a minute. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. It's there. Vicky, don't shoot me. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. You know, we've we got to speak confidently. I had an opportunity to do this this week, this, this past week. I was walking. I realize I don't do enough of that. But I was walking, and a family drove by, and they saw me, and they stopped. And that keeps me from walking, by the way. <laughs> it lets me catch my breath, anyhow. And uh, they, they were all dressed up. They had all dressed up, fixed up. And I said, where y'all been? I said, we just came from a funeral. Now, this, this is a couple I've been witnessing to for, we, we've been trying to get 
to come to Christ for a long, long time, Mary and I, for a long, long time. And uh, they hadn't budged. Uh, one of the members of this couple, his husband and wife, she's a Jehovah's Witness. And, and so they, they don't want anything to do with Christ or Christianity, at least as we understand it. And they've always cut us off. And, but in the process, they, you know, they, they pull up beside me and roll down the window, window and I'm trying, <gasps> where y'all been? <sighs> you know, that kind of a thing going on. We're having a conversation. He's telling me who it was that passed. And he said, it's really bad. You know, my friends are all passing away. My friends are all passing away. I said, yeah, it happens to all of us. And we have to be ready to meet the Lord. Just another opportunity to, to, to water the seed that's been planted. Just another opportunity to make sure that you have both. I didn't say it mean. I didn't say it unkind. But I used the open door to be able to speak to them about Jesus because we're very burdened about their soul. And we're confident. I'm confident that if they don't come to Christ, they're going to die and go to hell. And I am confident that the grace of God is sufficient to save them if they'll just come to Jesus. Jesus is their greatest need. So how do we make this confident presentation? First, we must receive a hearing to be effective. We've got to receive a hearing to be effective. Now, there's a number of ways, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. There's a number of ways to receive a hearing. You can do it with a revealing question. And I've written some of the questions that I have used, many others have used. They're not original to me. I didn't come up with them. I've heard others use them, and I adopted them as my own. Ways to begin a conversation with somebody about their eternal soul. Have you ever trusted in Christ for the gift of eternal life? If you were to die today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? Suppose you stand before God. He, he says to you, you know, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? There's all kinds of questions like this that are diagnostic questions that get you to the point of somebody being able to open up enough for you to start sharing the truth. And you'll know when it's right to, to ask that kind of a question. There's a second way to gain a hearing, and that's with a radiant testimony. That's where we're going to spend our time, with a radiant testimony. We'll come back to that in just a moment. A third way that we can gain a hearing is with a relevant scripture, a relevant scripture. Sometimes you're talking to somebody, and they're going through something, and you say, you know, I was just reading in my Bible the other day something that God had to say about that. What have you just done? You've stepped in through an open door to be able to share the love of Christ. And you can do it with a responsive concern. You can do it with a responsive concern. You say, what do you mean a responsive concern? I mean, somebody's had, had a loved one that passed, like the man that I was talking to, man and wife I was talking to uh, that, were, that drove by where I was, where I was walking. You know, a responsive concern. You show up with a meal at somebody's house when there's a, there's a death. You, you, you go to a wedding and you rejoice with them and are happy with them. You, know, you get there and you have a, a caring, concerned uh, presence in their lives. The, the sad part today is we are mostly holed up in our houses. And when we communicate, we do it this way. And we rarely ever get to know the people that are around us. I didn't grow up in this day. I wish I, I think I wish I had. But there was a day when they didn't have air conditioning. <clears throat> and all the houses had front porches on them. And 
when it got in the afternoon and the evenings, people didn't want to stay inside. It was too hot inside. And they came out on their front porches, and they would swing on the front porch or sit in a rocker, rocking chair or in a chair out on the front porch. Well, guess what? The people across the street and down next to them, uh, they were also hot inside the house. Air conditioning did away with this, did away with the porches like this, moved the porches from the front to the back. And those front porches, people sat on those front porches. How you doing, John? Hey, we're doing all right. How about you? And people were able, oh, I didn't know that was happening. I'm so sorry to hear that. Let me, let me come over and talk to you a minute. And you go over and you talk to your neighbor. You, now, you know you've done it. I've done it. You pull in your garage. You hit the garage door button so that it comes down before anybody else can get in that garage. And then covertly you go in through the, the, you know, the garage door into the house and you find your place to hide out. Um, I was at the funeral home yesterday and uh, visiting with a family that had a, had a death and uh, Mary and I were together. And there were our staff members. Brother Tim was there. And all the staff members were about to leave. I was leaving. I said, are you, are you going to leave? Brother Tim said, I'm going to wait around a little while and see if I see anybody else I know. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Concern, a responsive concern. But I want to bring you back now to this radiant testimony. You got to get a hearing. You got to be able to open the door to share the gospel with them in some fashion. You do that with a question. You do that with a testimony. You do that with a scripture. You do that with concern that you express toward people. But I want to talk to you specifically about your testimony because in my estimation, the greatest way to be able to begin sharing the gospel with people is by telling your story. And I want you to go with me to John chapter 9. What I'm about to give you is not in your notes. If you're going to get it, you're going to have to write it out in the margin or on the back side of the sheet. But it comes from John chapter 9 about having a good testimony and telling a good testimony. What is your story? What is your testimony? Can anybody tell my testimony? Anybody, any, how many of you think you could tell my testimonial story about coming to Jesus? How many of you think you could tell my story of, of coming to Jesus? I don't mean, I'm not going to ask you to, you thought I was going to have you stand up and tell it, didn't you? No, 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 no. That's my story. You don't get to tell my story. How many of you think you could tell my story if you had to tell my story? Okay, I got a few more hands. I don't know how that could be. You realize this church is 80 years old? It was 80 in May. You know how long I've been pastor? I've been here half the life of this church, and you don't know my story? How do you not know my story? I'm not going to tell you. You got a story of how you came to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and learning to tell that story is potentially the most important thing you can possibly do to find an open door to share the gospel, the good news with people. So I want to talk to you about how to do that. I'm going to give you seven things here about a good testimony, and they come out of John chapter 9. You know what's happening in John chapter 9? In John chapter 9, there's a blind man. He was born blind. And Jesus comes to the man who's born blind. There's uh, his disciples with him, and the disciples ask him the question, what is that question? Who sinned, this man or his parents? 
Because the common thinking of the day was that if somebody had some kind of a physical challenge of that nature, it had to be the result. God was punishing them in some way. So the disciples, knowing that's all that they know, that's all they've known, that's what they've been taught, they figured that either this man has committed some kind of a sin, and I don't know how you do that before you were even born, or his parents have committed some kind of sin, and the result is that his eyes are, are blinded so that he cannot see. And Jesus comes and Jesus says, it wasn't for any sin. It is for me to be able to display the work of God on this man's life. So what does he do? He makes this spittle thing, and he puts it on his eyes. He tells him to go down and to wash his eyes in the pool of Siloam. And this man gets up, and he, for the first time, he's never seen anything. He's never seen colors. He's never seen light. He's, he's felt the sun. He's never seen the sun, never seen the stars, never seen the moon, never seen the gold on Solomon's temple, never seen the color of his clothes. Never, if he had children, never seen the, the faces of his children, never seen the faces of his parents, the faces of his loved ones, the faces of his friends. He's never seen any of that. He comes up out of the water, and for the first time, he can see. Well, now, you would think that everybody would be super happy about this. You know, here's a man that previously couldn't see, and all of a sudden, because of the miracle-working power of Jesus, he can see. The problem was this is a Sabbath day. Obviously, the Pharisees aren't going to be happy about this because the Pharisees don't understand the Sabbath day. They've added all kinds of rules and regulations on top of the Sabbath day. And when they find out this man can see they go to him. Wait a minute. Now, how did you get your sight? Let me, let me have you tell us your story. This is the Sabbath day. You shouldn't have been able to get your sight on the Sabbath day. Can't you hear religious people talking like that? They still do it to this day. You can't get saved at church on Sunday. You can't get saved in your truck driving to work. You can't get saved at home around your dinner table. You can't get saved like that. <laughs> that's, that's the religious people talking. And the religious people say, hey, listen, tell us, how did you get your sight back? And this man enters into a conversation. It lasts this entire chapter. I can't give the whole chapter to you. It lasts the entire chapter, this back and forth between the Pharisees and him. Even at one point, we'll go to his parents and say, look, this is your son. Tell us what happened to him. You should know what's going on. What did the parents do? They throw him under the bus. And not literally. They said, he's of age. Let him answer for himself. Thanks, mom and dad. He's of age. Let him answer for himself. But in the process, what is laid out for us are seven things about a testimony that are absolutely essential. You're going to tell your story. This is one of the ways you're going to share the gospel. You're going to get the door open to be able to share the gospel is by telling them what Jesus has done for you. And being able to do that effectively and efficiently is absolutely essential. So, number one, a good testimony illustrates change. It illustrates change. Look at chapter 9, verse 11. It illustrates change. He answered them and said, that is, he answers the Pharisees and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. What does he say? I was blind, but I'm seeing now. 
What does his story indicate? His story indicates that I came into this world unable to see, but now I'm able to see something I've never been able to do in the course of my life. Your testimony, your story needs to be a story that illustrates change. Now, that's, that, that's really significant for some people. Some of the people that Nisha works with that come off the streets that have been into drugs and other kinds of things that we think of as the worst of the worst of the worst possible sins. When they come to Jesus, you know, it's easy for them to say, well, I used to do drugs. I don't do drugs anymore. I used to do this, and I, I don't do that anymore. I used to be that, that this way, and I'm not that way anymore. But some of you got saved when you were five. What are you going to say? Well, I kicked my sister once. God saved me from it. I quit kicking her and started slapping her. <laughs> what are you going to say? You know, some people have a dramatic testimony that illustrates the change that Jesus makes. But everybody has change if they've met Jesus. Because you can talk about the joy that you have. You can talk about the peace that God's given to you. You can talk about the comfort that he provides for you. You can talk about the hope that you have beyond this world. That's about the change. A good testimony illustrates change. I keep telling you about my testimony. I grew up all of my life in church. We never missed church. We were required to go to church. We were drugged to church. I was a drug addict before drug addicts were, were cool. I was drugged to church and drugged to Sunday school and drugged to all these other things, but I didn't know Jesus. I was going through the rituals. I was going through the ceremonies, but I didn't know Christ personally until that December 26, 1973. When it clicked in my mind that my eyes were open, the scales fell off my eyes. Like Paul, the scales fell off my eyes, and I saw this is a relationship that I've got to have with Jesus by faith. And my life changed. Listen, my life, I didn't have any deep, dark, ugly sins. I did some stupid things. I drank, I sipped out of a glass of beer one time. I smoked a few cigarettes until I was stupid and did so in the garage of my house. And my daddy found out and said, if you ever do that again, I'll tell your mother. I cursed a few times at the golf course. I used God's name in vain on the golf course. I heard everybody else do it, and I thought it was the cool thing. I didn't, I mean, that is, that's bad. That's really bad. But, but you didn't find me in a, I wasn't in a gutter somewhere. But I'm going to tell you, that night Jesus changed my life. It was no longer just a matter of going through a routine. Oh, let's go to church on Sunday. Let's get this done. Check it off the box. Let's, let's get on down the road. Let's get back. I, listen, I was looking forward to getting out of church so I could get to the golf course, which was about a half a mile, excuse me, about a mile. Well, how far, far was it, honey? It was about, about two and a half miles away. Get to the golf course so I can play golf and get back to church on Sunday evening. After that, God changed my heart. I began to understand the significance of church. You see how it illustrates change? Now, here's the real problem. I, a lot of folks professing Jesus, I don't see a lot of change. But a good testimony illustrates change. Number two, a good testimony maintains simplicity. It illustrates change. It maintains simplicity. Look at verse 15, chapter 9, verse 15. Then the Pharisees also asked him again, now, they're asking this man again. See the word again? Again, again. 
how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I saw. I put clay, he put clay on my eyes. I went down to the pool, I washed and now my eyes can see. The testimony maintains simplicity. You don't want to take people through a theological exposition or even a a biblical exposition of the deeper truths of God. Let me explain to you all about sanctification and about what justification will do for you and how redemption means you will this and that and the other. You will lose people from the moment you begin. First of all, they don't have the spiritual mind to understand those kind of things to begin with. And so a good testimony is a testimony that maintains simplicity. Number three, a good testimony utilizes brevity. A good testimony utilizes brevity. Now, there are some people that I will sit and listen to for as long as they want to talk because I love them. And there are other people that will talk as long as I will stand there and I can't wait to get away. But when it comes to telling your testimony, it shouldn't take you a very long time to do so. You should, in a, very, a matter of a few minutes, be able to relate your testimony, your story of what Jesus has done for you. Look at chapter 9, verse 25. He's still in this back and forth with the Pharisees. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's pretty quick, isn't it? I don't know how it happened. By the way, you didn't, unless, unless your father was a preacher or you know, a theology professor, you didn't know how it happened to you either. You couldn't have explained it either. You couldn't have gone into the deep truths about justification and, and redemption. And well, I'm, I'm going to get, I'm, they're too deep for me. I can't even pull them all up. You got to keep it simple. It utilizes brevity. If you get somebody into a, just a long story, you know, 25 minutes in, oh, wow. Do you, do you need Jesus? No, I need to sleep. <laughs> just, just shut up. Let me sleep. A good testimony illustrates change, maintains simplicity, utilizes brevity. Number four, a good testimony stays focused. It stays focused. I take you back to verse 25. They're asking him, now, now you got to tell us how this happened. you got to tell us how this happened. They're asking, do you know if Jesus is a sinner or not? What, what does he do? He, he says it. One thing I know, I know one thing, that though I was blind, now I, now I see. He just stayed focused. What's your focus? i got to get the story of Jesus, how Jesus changed my life. A good testimony stays focused. Number five, a good testimony displays confidence. I love this part. It displays confidence. Verse 27, he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Don't you love that? (laughs) How many times am I going to have to tell you this? I've told you the same thing. I don't know who he is. I don't know everything there is to know about him. I just know he put this mud on my face. I went down there and washed my, my face, and I got up out of the water. I could see. That's a pretty good testimony, right? And he just stayed focused. Look at that, verse 27. He answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You ever felt like saying that to somebody? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Ooh. Ooh. You know what he does? He stays focused. He just stays, he just keeps telling the story. How many times can you tell your story? 
you ought to be telling it thousands of times. I mean, in the course of your life. Telling it over and over. Tell it to your kids. Tell it to your grandkids. Tell it to your great-grandkids. Tell it to your neighbors. You know, tell it to anybody that will listen to your story. A good testimony illustrates change. It maintains simplicity. It utilizes brevity. It stays focused. It displays confidence. When he was being questioned by the Pharisees and they were turning up the heat and tightening down the screws, he didn't change his story. He stayed confident. Number six, a good testimony glorifies Christ. Ultimately, the story has to glorify Christ. Now, I've heard a few preachers tell the story from the pulpit about how God changed them, and they had a dramatic, dramatic change from where they were to where they are by the power of Jesus Christ. But when they got through telling the story, I couldn't help but, at least as a young teenager, as a teenager, I couldn't help but think, you know, I might like to try that former life out first. They glorified the old life more than they glorified the new life. They glorified their old way of living more than they glorified Jesus. You want to make sure that your life, your testimony t- t- tells the story of Jesus in a way that glorifies him. Look at it, verse 30 to 33. The man answered and said to them, why, this is, the, this is, a, marvelous, uh, why? This is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now, we, he's, he's saying this to the Pharisees. This, this, how, how can this be that he can open my eyes and do these kind of miracles and you don't know who he is? Verse 31, now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one that was born blind. If this man were not from God, he, would, he could do nothing. You know what he does? He just keeps, he, he keeps bringing it back to Jesus. And a good testimony glorifies Christ. Don't glorify your past. If you've got an ugly, dark past, don't spend the, well, I used to go down to the bar I'd sit there all, all evening. I was so drunk by the time I got through, I couldn't hardly get up. I stumbled out. But I want to tell you, I was surrounded by some really good friends. They watched after me. They made, they made over me. They made sure I get home. They carried me into the house. Hey, that sounds pretty good. Maybe I'll try that. Get some friends just like that. Your story ought to glorify Jesus. Jesus, you're the one who deserves all the praise in the honor. I don't know if you know this about me, but I don't like pride. I don't like pride in me. I don't like pride in others. That's why I don't like politics. I don't like arrogance. I don't like it when I find it in me. I don't like it when I find it in other people. It's not about us. 40 years is not about me. It's about Jesus. My picture will go on a wall somewhere with the other nine pastors or eight pastors before me. This building, you can tear it down. It won't matter to me. What matters is that Jesus is glorified. That's what matters. Number seven, a good testimony illustrates change. It maintains simplicity. It utilizes brevity. It stays focused. It displays confidence. It glorifies Christ. And a good testimony, number seven, brings reaction. It brings reaction. When you tell your testimony right, you better be prepared because you're going to get kicked back. They might not do it immediately. You're going to get kicked back, verse 34, chapter 9, verse 34. He's just told them, I've told you once, I've told you twice, I've told you several times now. If you don't know who this man is, how do you think I'm going to know who this man is? I can just tell you one thing. I couldn't see before, I could see afterwards. 
That's how simple his testimony is. Verse 34, they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Oh, boy, wow. By the way, Jesus goes and finds him, and aren't you glad? Cast him out. It brings a reaction. Your testimony ought to bring a reaction. Most of the time, that's going to be a positive reaction. Occasionally, it may be a negative reaction. But you're not telling your story just to be able to, you know, I want you to know who I am. I tell my story because I want somebody else to hear that you can be religious and be lost. You can be religious and be going to hell from the pews of the church. And that's where I was going until I met Jesus Christ. A good testimony illustrates change. It maintains simplicity. It utilizes brevity, unlike this message. It stays focused. It displays confidence. It glorifies Christ. And it brings reaction. We have to get a hearing. We can do that with a question. We can do that with a scripture. We can do that with showing concern. We can do that maybe most powerfully through sharing our testimony. So here's our, here's our assignment between now <laughs> and January the 7th or 6th or whatever is going to be 8th. Is that the 8th? Yeah, Jan- now and January the 8th, practice telling your story, right? That, y'all aren't real confident. Don't, don't, don't you, I, listen, we're not going to do this. If all you're coming to do is just put words to fill in the blanks, because you can't, you know, you're, you're, you're um, what's the word? Uh, you're OCD. I mean, I've got to have those blanks filled in. Th- this is about helping us to be a witness. More than anything, it's try- trying to get us to be motivated to talk to people about Jesus. And one of the best ways to do that is just tell your story. Uh, I don't know how many times I have stood and um, listened to somebody. We were talking about something altogether different. But there was an open door, and I heard it. I saw it, and I stepped through. Can I tell you what the Lord did for me? Can I tell you how he changed my life? And I start telling my story, and before I know it, I've got their absolute attention. I don't take 10 minutes to tell it. Most of the time, I don't even take five minutes to tell it. Can you tell your story? That's one of the greatest ways to be able to share the love of Jesus. Practice it. You've got a whole month. You're going to have all the family come into your house. Sit them down and say, tonight's your night. I'm telling you my story tonight. And then that might get the next one. I'm telling you my story tonight. In practice, 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 practice telling your story.